0: Hello and welcome to the Motormouth podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. We also want to let you know that you can now join our patron programme. It starts from £5 a month to £10 or £20, depending on uh, what you want. Each tier allows you slightly different levels of access, Uh, depending on which one you choose. You can enjoy early access to podcast episodes, exclusive member benefits, merchandise, shout outs, and your chance to feature on one of our shows. Any support you can give us is massively appreciated and will help us grow and continue to bring cool content to race fans all over the world. Uh, You can find the link on our socials, just search for Motormouth or go to patreon.com Don't forget to like and subscribe and you can also leave us a review. Download the Motormouth app where you can get live race times, exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy.
2: Welcome to episode 18 of the Motormouth mouth podcast Um, alongside me but down in essex as always is thespian motorsport guru and bearded beauty harry benjamin good evening harry
0: Good evening, Tim. How are you? Dealing with uh, what day are we on of I- isolation now? Can't recall. Uh, I have no idea. It feels
2: like about a hundred, to be honest with you. I've completely yeah. had enough of it, and uh, maybe by the time this gets released, we'll all be um, down the pub. But I have a feeling we could be doing this for quite some time.
0: I just can't wait for the pub session after this is all over. That's no. going to be uh, that's going to be a fun one. Um,
2: shall I uh, shall I introduce today's guest? So today we are joined by a man who's currently um, eleven thousand miles away in the lovely country of New Zealand. Um, in recent times, our guest Brendan Hartley has competed in European Le Mans, Bathurst 12 Hours, the 12 Hours of Daytona, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, as part of the World Endurance Championship with Porsche in the 919 Hybrid, alongside Timo Bernhardt, an antipodean colleague and friend Mark Webber. He would go on to not only several podiums, but the overall championship not once, but twice, winning the 24 Hours of Le Mans along the way. Porsche left Endurance Racing at the end of 2017, and Brendan found himself making his Formula 1 debut in Austin that same year before completing a full season in 2018. He would later return to Porsche to prepare the team for their maiden season in Formula E before finally making his home at Giotte Dragon Racing. It's an absolute pleasure, no, an honour to have a former Formula 1 driver, double WEC winner, Le Mans champ and currently Formula E racer on the show. A huge Motormouth welcome
0: to Brendan Hartley. Thank you so much for joining us, Brendan, from uh, yeah, from New Zealand. You're home in New Zealand. What's it like over there? It's very early in the morning, isn't it? Yeah,
1: t- thanks for the, the warm welcome as well. It was a bit over the top. But yeah, it's <laughs> very I just got I just got up. I probably look like it's got up, although I always look like I just got up. Um, so yeah, it's a time. Nine ten past nine in the morning, uh, sunny day, but in fact New Zealand's just overnight gone on to full lockdown as well. So yes. all yeah. know, businesses have just been closed can still go outside to exercise, but um, yeah, we're on the other side of the world, but it's, it's a very similar situation.
2: And presumably you're, you're not based there d- during a normal race season. Um, this year is obviously a bit weird, but during a normal race season, presumably you, you don't base yourself in New Zealand, or, or perhaps you do.
1: No, really not. Um, it, I mean, my wife Sarah and I, we we're, we're very fortunate. We, we spent the last couple of years designing and building a house, not with my own two hands, but we built a, a holiday home here. Uh, And that was finished in December. So we had all our friends and family over and and, um, the party here at New Year's. So basically when, you know, when all the racing got got cancelled over the last month or so um, about a week and a half ago, we made the decision just to come back to New Zealand. It was, it was probably the the most sensible thing to do. We're not living on top of each other here. Um, we, We live in Monaco for the, for the, i mean all the year yeah in fact we, we normally just come home for christmas and new year so roughly about one month per year but i'm, I'm much happier to be here and yeah. not living in a, in a small one bedroom apartment right now on lockdown so i, I do feel for everyone who is doing that and, and we're, we're in touch with a lot of our, our friends in, in the south of france and yeah. Yeah, i think we made the right call to come home but it is it's challenging times for everyone
2: no a- a- absolutely yeah now um you grew up in palmerston north um an area of new zealand i've actually never been to um yeah it's not as a tourist you don't normally go through there but no it, not, there's a race track right there well there you go i was gonna say i mean how, how does a does a young guy from um, palmerston north end up getting into racing so you had a local race track and presumably that's where you um first stepped into a cart
1: yeah so I pretty much grew up at the racetrack, even before go-karting. So my, my father raced pretty much anything you could think of. So it's a speedway in New Zealand's very popular. so Dirt track ovals, he raced minis. He raced Formula Holden, um, which was a which it was a series in, in um, Australia. So single seaters. I, I always used to give Mark Webber a stick because he um, he raced against my dad at the I think it was the very first Melbourne Grand Prix. Showing his age. The only bad Showing thing you. about it. Mark won the race. So I, I, there wasn't, <laughs> you know, the, the joke could only go so far because Mark won the race. So yeah, he raced from Atlantic. So basically he raced all sorts and my earliest childhood memories were were watching him, him race. Um, he was the kind of driver who had a bit of talent um, but, well, you know, was just doing it out of the back garage. I remember the stories one year he... He bought He bought a former Atlantic car that KK Rosberg crashed and destroyed in New Zealand, bought it and spent the whole winter building it up to race it the next year so you know that, that was kind of wow. uh, that was how you know he he was successful in his own right, but never really had the funding or, or um, someone to fund him you know, yeah. taking it any further but yeah he he had a bit of success so yeah my my earliest memories were being at the racetrack and um, I also have an older brother, Nelson, who started go karting before me um, so my, my father. Basically, gave up his his racing to um, you know, put me and my brother into go karts, which was actually quite cost effective back in back in that time. Um, I know yeah. go karting is that's crazy now. crazy money in, in Europe, but at least in New Zealand it wasn't the case. My, my father, by trade, is a you know engine builder, and we did everything ourselves. And I'll, I would be at, at, down at the workshop after after um, after school, rebuilding the engine, or you know putting on the car you know we, we did everything ourselves and, and that, that was also the theme going into to single seaters as well so yeah i was lucky to be in a motorsport um mad household
0: yeah so uh, definitely running through the, the family blood yes. obviously so what was the the thing in your head that went right okay I want the, I want to do this professionally. Motorsport is my out and out passion. And I suppose in New Zealand, how high can you take that before you you have to make that inevitable move to to Europe or to America? I suppose.
1: Um, yeah, it's funny because as a young go karter, I always told everyone I was going to be a Formula One driver. And I think that's the beauty of being a young six, seven, seven year old. You don't you know, sky's the limit, right? You know, you, yeah. you, you drink big and, and you don't you don't really see all the all the potential limitations and and, and you know roadblocks. So um, looking back, you know, it was it was probably completely unrealistic for me to believe that that would ever happen, but um, it did. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I, and it's, it's incredibly cliche, but it's one of those things, yeah, dreams can come true and do come yeah. true. Yeah. In my case, it definitely was. But I'm, uh, I'm well aware that, you know, there was a bit of luck involved and timing and, um, I mean, so many people along the way that, that helped make that happen. But, yeah, I mean, it was, I, I mean, I'm just thinking back, you know, when you're a five or six-year-old um, starting go-karting, I I think the thing I enjoyed about it the most was the competitive side of it. Um, quite quickly, I realized I was I was quite good at it. Um, I obviously had good equipment because my, my dad was an engine builder, so we always had good engines yeah. and, and, and good parts. Um, but I think what what really grabbed me in was the competitive side of it. I I, I hated losing, and I loved I loved to win, and and it was that competitive um, element of of man and machine yeah. working together that yeah I, I um. I just had the bug for. So, you know, every single weekend, maybe not every weekend, but, um, we never, we never went
0: on holidays. It, it, everything we did as a family was, was going racing. What was the, um, so, uh, the, 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 spirit between you and your brother? Like, cause you mentioned he was also casting. So when, what was the competitive nature like between you two? It's funny cause we, we, we've never actually raced against each other.
1: Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So he, he's four years older than me. So sorry, I tell a lie and and this is something that always stuck with me as I I remember my very first go-kart race as I think I just turned six or maybe I I was still five, but I just turned six and um, you know, dad rolled out um, this go-kart. I'm sure it wasn't quite as good as as my brother's, but I remember the the first test day um, I got, you know, obviously was not as quick as my brother had been doing it for four years and um, we were racing the next day and we got the carts back to the, to the home. and, And I remember looking, at both carts okay we've got different gears we've got different nasa i found, you know we, I, I started looking for why his cart was different and, and and why i wasn't fast enough so it what i'm trying to say is that i realized my competitive nature all the way back then it's funny um, isn't it it's just day i got lapped by my brother there's no you know i mean i was oh no <laughs> time, but it was just the fact that i was already looking to how i could gain an advantage and not just from myself you know that 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 man man and machine that combination so you know already from my first weekend I was yeah competitive bastard but also yeah looking at the machinery and and trying to find an excuse here and there
2: and you you ended up moving to Europe after some success um, in uh, in New Zealand around 16 years old who did you come over with and and what can you remember what was going through your head at the time were you just thinking this is amazing I'm about to live my dream or were you terrified I mean that's that's a huge leap to make
1: Yes I wouldn't say I was terrified um but I also didn't really know what I was in for So I guess to give you some perspective um I mean my my geography skills were were awful you know I'd spent um you know I, I was i was a pretty decent stu- student i was top of my school in maths scraped through in english scraped through in history didn't speak another language um and then at at, at 16 years old i, I left school and, and was traveling across the other side of the world to, to europe to countries i didn't even you know hadn't heard of or yeah. couldn't even locate them on the map um and i guess they were, i'm just trying to think where i'm going with this I, I was never scared, but when I look back, I'm always kind of surprised that we didn't question it. Like even even from from my parents' point of view, you know, know, I I was 16 years old, and and that was looking back, that that must have been a huge decision for them to to allow me to to hop on a plane. They weren't coming with me. I come from a very you know modest family. They 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 couldn't just stop the business and and come across the other side of the world. You know, I was I was off on my own to to Europe. Oh my god! Um, Never cooking a meal in my life. So. I guess at that time being 16 you you don't yeah you tend not to fret and stress about all those potential challenges and and yeah it was it was exciting but what I wanted to say was that there was never a second thought Um, I had this opportunity to come up with Red Bull so I'd been um, pretty successful in New Zealand motorsport I had I had some 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 great support from from New Zealand um, companies and and businessmen um, you know helping me in my in the grassroots in New Zealand but taking that next step to Europe was in some ways unachievable. You know, that's just the level of funding you need to come to Europe was, yeah. was, uh, was, was on another planet from what, at least from where I came from. So, so, so when the Red Bull, um, Red Bull junior team contract turned up, um, first of all, I'd never seen a contract in my life. So reading it, that, that was quite daunting, you know? Um, but then the actual decision to, to leave home school friends and family to Europe. It, it just was never a question. And even for my parents, which I think like, I'm just, I'm trying to consider now if I had a 15 year old, would yeah. I let them travel to the other side of the world by themselves? And it would be quite a hard question to answer. So I, yeah, I, I really appreciate what my parents let me do but it, it was it was so much of a dream and an opportunity for us that it was never yeah, never a second
2: thought. I guess they must have seen the <clears throat> the passion that you had for it and and thought this is too good an opportunity to turn down but it's you know, like you say it's a huge thing. I mean I I first went traveling when I was 19 to New Zealand. Um, on my own and I thought that was a major thing to do you know and I was kind of surprised my parents let me do that at 19 years old um, but to travel to um, Europe at 16 to pursue your dream um, they obviously saw something that um, that in you that they they felt was worth pursuing but um, another, nevertheless a huge move. So when you came over to Europe where did you settle and who did you settle with who were you living with you know what did you do for a living arrangement? Yeah.
1: So some people will laugh the people that have been um, there will laugh but so I first went to a small town in East Germany called
2: ostersleben Oh
0: know. yes,
2: <laughs> do you know it, Harry? <laughs> so, I know ostersleben
0: there's, there's a um, there is a racetrack there, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I yes, yeah, a, a small town called ostersleben and there's there's a racetrack there, and that was the team I was racing with. That they were based out of out of, um, out of that racetrack. So I, we lived in a little industrial estate about two kilometers from uh, from the racetrack. Um, I wasn't old enough to have a, a license to, to drive a car in Europe, although I was in New Zealand. So we had push bikes. Um, we'd, we'd go to the uh, workshop many days of the week, normally to clean tires and do other bits that the team members didn't want to do. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, so Yeah, you asked who I was living with. Um, we, we had, I wouldn't call it a house, you know, we were we lived basically under power lines, and it was in an industrial state, so there was businesses around, but we had kind of a room each that we could lock the door to, and there was a shared kitchen. And I lived with another driver, John Edwards, yeah. who is an American driver. He's now professional for, for BMW. Um, another Australian driver, uh, Nathan Antunas, um, and one of the mechanics was living in the, in the, the complex as well. Um we had fun, like, you know, we'd, we'd sometimes hop on the train to Berlin on our push bikes and, you know, tear, tear up the city and, you know, the, the, the closest city was Magdeburg. I mean, we had fun, but no one spoke English there. Um, it was all oh, no. really foreign for me. Did you did you pick uh, up
2: any of the, the local lingo?
1: Um, that's something I'm a little bit embarrassed about, I have to <laughs> say, is language was never a strong point for me. I can understand a little bit of German, but I, I really couldn't hold a conversation and when I look back and, and the fact that I did spend quite a bit of time in Germany and, and even recently being in, in German teams, um, I'm a little bit embarrassed that I never took the time to, to, to and throw myself into learning another language.
0: Um, yeah, I don't think you're alone in that one for, that, for anybody. That's really. probably
1: one of my very few regrets, actually. But being a New Zealander, like, I'll, I'll never forget being at school and having the option to learn another language and being a, you know, starting high school and teachers telling you, yeah, it'd be good for you to learn another language, French, Italian, German, whatever it was. And I remember just laughing at them. i like, no, mate, I'll take music. What do I want to learn another yeah. language for? Like, I just <laughs> didn't, I did not see it back then. No. I, I seriously, and then a year later, here I am living the, on the other side of the world. and going, oh, crap, you know, maybe that would have been a, a good idea. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Oh well, uh, you're not the only one, I think. Um, so let's talk about that that Red Bull contract that you uh, received. One of the the main reasons for you heading over to Europe. How did that come about? And and to talk us about those early days within the Red Bull program. And and because it's come a long way since then, I suppose. And what the structure was like.
1: Yeah. So when I joined, there was 21, 22 drivers.
0: Okay, that's um, well, still quite a lot, actually. Then. Yeah. It was
1: it was really a lot. Yeah, I, I think. So I I. I did the, uh, sorry, the Red Bull Young Driver Search in Estoril. Uh, I think it was the same time as Jaime Osuari. I remember Sebastian Buemi being there. I think he was already a, a Red Bull Junior. Um, I don't remember the others. Nathan Eturis was was signed up on that day. Anyway, so my, our first Red Bull training camp, which were incredibly fun, in fact, um, was in, in Austria, and uh, there was twenty two of us. I remember Sebastian Vettel being there, and, and and all sorts of others that you know that have, that have done well since. Um, and they were fun times actually you know mingling with with 22 other young drivers or you know you're friendly with them but you you know that every year there's a a turnover of about 10 of us and, and there'll be another 10 coming next year for the you know so there it was it was um an interesting dynamic but you know for me i was i was meeting all these all these other drivers from all different stretches of the world you know cultures that i'd never experienced before and it was, um, it was a fast learning curve for me, just being dumped into different cultures and different environments and, and the racing environment was very different too. But, um, yeah, just, yeah I remember that first training
0: camp at, at Red Bull
1: and I don't know who organized it, but it must've been a nightmare to, to <laughs> too. <laughs> and did your, uh,
0: did your hair go down well? Because I've seen some questionable hairstyles from you over the years, especially um, some of the older videos. <laughs> yeah. At, at, at that time it was uh, probably not as bad. So,
1: uh, actually it's, I went to an all boys school and we, um, we had to have our hair, I think above the collar and above the ears. So when I left school, it kind of just, I just didn't get a haircut for a while. I kept growing. And then, you know, people kept saying, oh, you need to cut your hair. And I guess I was just stubborn, you know, I was a stubborn bastard. And I was just like, no, I can't believe it. You know? So over the course of three years, it just, it got... Awfully long, and I look back at those photos now, and I'm, like, I mean, I'm embarrassed. I'm like, what was I, what was I thinking? But in some ways, it was a bit of stubbornness. I was, and but there was, a, there was a part of me that wasn't stupid, and that I remembered, um, even if. You know, I would sometimes say, and if, even if it looks a bit silly, people remember me, and, and well, it was that's true, the thing. You, know?
0: you stand out, you don't you? Me. Like, I might have looked, I might have looked like a clown, but people remember.
1: <laughs> me. And there, there were times, there were times in my career, like, oh yeah, I remember you, yeah, the one with the long hair. I was like, you know yes. it, it actually helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stick yeah. you yeah. yourself apart somehow, and I didn't Not realize thinking. it at the time, but it wasn't it, like I, I said it to myself
0: a few times, but it, it ended up ringing very true. Mm, not to think of all the money you'll be saving on haircuts as well that you can uh, yeah, exactly. plow into your racing career. But I luckily, I, actually, I didn't cut my hair for years. Like, that's, wow! That's, well, do you how long are we talking here? Do you think like over two? I don't know, a
1: year and a half at least. Uh, oh, maybe, yeah, oh It God. got pretty long.
0: <laughs> but well, during well, as as we said, you know, uh, you're saving all that money from uh, from the barber. But as we've touched on already, <laughs> especially he wasn't a lot, but especially young races coming up through the field. You need you need money. You need sponsorships to to make to make the progress and to get to those higher echelons of motorsport. Red Bull program is there for you to help power you up through through the junior formula. You know you've done uh, Euro Cup Formula uh, Formula Three, British Formula Three, and then I suppose is that first big break in two thousand and nine being confirmed as a as a reserve driver for Red Bull and Toro Rosso in Formula One. How old were you when that happened?
1: Um... Was that 18, 19, I think.
0: That, and and that—that's incredibly young to, to, to be, you know. Well, I suppose these days you've got Max Verstappen and people like that now. You, the age has changed, hasn't it? But yeah. for, your, for that time, that must have been quite a remarkable achievement.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I didn't see it at the time, and in some ways, it probably happened all a bit too quickly. Um, I definitely wasn't prepared to be an F1 driver at at eighteen or nineteen, and, and I know Max came in and did it. But you know, hats off to him. I I, I wasn't um, I wasn't prepared for yeah. it. Um, yeah and, and I mean yeah just touching on Red Bull yeah, I mean they as you say in, in, in motorsport you need a bit of funding behind you and, and I didn't have that from my, my parents but I absolutely had that from Red Bull so they, they gave me that that huge opportunity and, and so did others in New Zealand you know to get, to get myself t- to where I was um, you know ready to be picked up by Red Bull um, but equally I, I, I have um, in fact I'm still uh, you know Paying back shareholders, I had people that you know, you know, fellow Kiwis who put money into me, not not looking to make a return, but just looking to help out, and and I'm still paying them back today because even to be in Europe, even if we weren't paying for the racing, just just the living expenses and yeah, and, and live, you know, it's high for a young a young fellow like me not having an income and my parents not being able to do it. So I've been incredibly lucky not only to have Red Bull but a lot of other supporters and uh, around me to to get me through those. Those tricky times, and and that that is where motorsport is different from um, a lot of other sports. Where yeah, there is a certain level of funding and, and family support, or it doesn't. Really, you know a lot of people a lot of people talk about the you know rich kids and oh okay it's daddy's money, but I'm, I'm I have a little bit of a different thought on that because you know I, I had I had Red Bull support. You know, the, the, there's still money being spent from somewhere. You know, okay, mine yeah. didn't come from my parents, but you know, I, I had Red Bull support. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I feel incredibly lucky that I, that I had that, um, that support and, and uh, coming through, but yeah, sorry, you, you mentioned about um, 2019 and yeah, it happened probably, yeah, it happened a bit too quickly. So my second year in Europe, I won the Formula Renault two-letter championship, which back then was, you know, that, that was, that was the big thing in the up and coming series. It was I think, 40 cars in the field and that was a big success. And, I think what happened after then, it just—I just moved. It just everything happened a bit too quickly. So I went—I went to Formula Three in England. Um, I would argue, you know, I think—I think I maybe had the most wins and the most polls, but I made a lot of stupid errors. That was the year that Jaime Alguersuari won. So we, we were teammates, and I just didn't really put it all together, even if if the, the speed was there. And but what happened the year after that was probably I needed another year to kind of grow and 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 figure everything out, but. I was then thrown into European Formula Three with Carling, who, who didn't have a lot of experience in, in European Formula Three at that time. I was thrown into World Series by Renault, um, the Renault 3.5, the same year. So I think I'm talking 2018 now. Sorry, yeah, so 2018. So yeah, so 2008. I'm, sorry, <laughs> it is early here, but I have just <laughs> no, uh, don't worry. <laughs> so let me get my years right here. No, sorry, 2009, 2008. Was right. Something. Okay. 2009. So, Formula Three, World Series by Renault. Never driving the car before. So that's two championships already. And at the same time, I was made the the Formula One reserve driver. So I had three calendars, and I was you know 18 or 19 years old. Yeah. And to be honest with you, it, it was too much. I got mm. burnt out. Um, I hated being at the Formula One track. I, I never really knew my role there. I was sitting on meetings. I, you know and, and and at the same time the, the racing wasn't going very well at that year and it starts to be a bit of a downward spiral you know you you're doing too much you're not focused on one thing you're in the f1 paddock and and that was that was probably the year which was a bit of my yeah a bit of a downward spiral a bit of a dark time i stopped enjoying it and um yeah it took a while to recover from that you know in 2010 the next year i, I lost my drive at uh at um in the red bull junior program and i kind of had to find myself again which which was a big thing I had to go and make my own decisions um, pick up the phone get the whiteboard out figure out how I turn my career around because all of a sudden I was in situations like okay well I have to make this work now I'm on the other side of the world I've got an opportunity to to turn it around and, and um, that's another story but I think yeah what, what I'd say is it probably happened a bit too fast but too soon I wasn't prepared for that level of, of pressure and, and and busyness and I'm probably r- ranting on a bit but yeah, as as a nineteen year old when you're on a plane every single week and just not having time to digest and think and yeah, I just wasn't prepared, mate. So, you know, big mm. respect
2: to to the likes of Max Verstappen who who was able to do that at at 19. I mean, he's a bit of a, a, a bit of a freak of nature, isn't he? And and I think some other young...
1: I'm not trying to take anything yeah. away from him. He, he's he's,
2: he's been incredible. And, and there have been some young drivers who have tried to rush into the sport, probably off the back of his success at such a young age. But he is a bit of a, you know, a once every 10 or 15 years kind of character. But I don't think you're alone in feeling sort of overawed and burnt out by that kind of scenario. And, you know, we see in the F1 paddock, you wander around and you, you see young drivers coming through standing in the back of a garage. Looking, looking lost, and thinking, you know, what, yeah, what, what, what is my yeah. role? What am I doing here? And, and you do see it. Well, I it simulator job. as well, mate. Simulator on top of those programs. yeah. But, yeah. So it's a lot of responsibility. It's proper sort of sink or swim stuff. But you're not fully developed as a driver or a human being at 19 years old. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a very tough scenario. But then, what was to come? Um, I doubt you probably even imagined at this stage. But ha- where did the transition happen, where you started to look into the LMP route and and end up becoming a double um, WEC champion, Le Mans winner um, in this sort of few years purple patch that you had? Where did that transition from single seaters move into LMP?
1: Yeah. So uh, during, post haircut, <laughs> post haircut. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Doing sorry during twenty. 20- 10 when I lost uh, my drive at Red Bull, so that was what, in some ways it was a bit of a relief. Like a relief, I knew it, was, it wasn't going well. I wasn't happy. Um, I'm not saying I wasn't happy with with, uh, with with Red Bull. It was just you know the situation. Yeah. It was a bit of a downward spiral. So it almost felt like a bit of a new beginning. And um, I started picking up the phone. Um, I had great advice from a from a, a long time supporter in New Zealand to look, get the whiteboard out, write down every contact that you have and just start trying to figure it out. And that's what I did. And, and during the end of 2010, I picked up a few drives here and there, same as 2011. I, I actually was still racing single seaters, um, by, you know, picking up free drives, but you know, d- d- um, drivers that hadn't paid their bills. So they needed someone last minute and you know, like, okay, well, who's on, out there? Okay. We know Brendan doesn't have any money, we'll throw him in. So had a few drives um, here and there for that. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, working like that. Um, and I also, I also went to Mercedes. So during, must have been the end of 2010, I um, I joined Mercedes as their simulator driver. Yeah, one one of the simulator drivers. There was a couple of us, um, and I did that for a good couple of years. And I think that was a good move um, because it it kept me, you know, at the high end of at the high end of motorsport and development and and working with a Formula One team in a very professional environment. So I think that was very good for my development, and it was you know, I was getting a, a daily wage. You know, that was – that was. My, my wife, Sarah, was working at a restaurant. I was going every day to the simulator to basically put food on the table. Yeah. And, and I think that was a good experience for me and also kept me, you know, at the forefront of the technology and, and, and development, et cetera. Um, you asked about the endurance. So how that happened was um, I was still very good friends with uh, Sebastian Boyme.
2: Yeah.
1: And I remember he came to Milton Keynes. He was still um, – oh, he was in Formula One at the time, actually – I was just leaving formula one and just had just signed for Toyota and their return to LMP one. And I started asking them about endurance and it's going to, it, it, you know, I've said it before and it's probably it probably upset some uh, Le Mans enthe- uh, enthusiasts, but I'd never had any interest in Le Mans. I, I didn't know anything about it. I'd never watched an endurance race before, but here I was chatting to Sebastian about potential opportunities in endurance racing. And, um, I basically followed him to a test at Paul Ricard I think it was early 2012. I took my helmet and my overalls and um, a bank account which I'd saved up a few thousand euros from my work at Mercedes and speaking to a few teams about getting some laps in an LP2 car um, and that was tough for me arriving at a racetrack not knowing anyone it was it felt like a new form of motorsport because. Yeah. In endurance racing, back then at least, there wasn't many young single-seater guys trying to do what I was doing. So, yes, people knew who I w- were, but it felt very separate endurance racing and, and single-seater racing. Anyway, I, w- I walked up and down the uh, the pit lane in Port Ricard. It was the uh, official European Le Mans series testing. I met every single team owner, and I did 20 laps in an LMP2 car for Boots and Ginian. I paid, I think it was 1,500 euros. I... I you know, t- t- basically a new set of tires. I did very well um, at, at, on the test, and during that time, I met um, a funny character called Greg Murphy, uh, Irish fellow who, who was running an LMP2 team. He he was starting a new team. He actually remembered my stupid long haircut from back then. <laughs> uh, hey, there you go; it's coming in handy. Winning, <laughs> and um, he liked the idea of putting a a, a young buck from single seaters into his LMP2 car, his his team that he was just starting, and. I did my very first endurance race about a month later and, and, you know, that all stemmed from just, you know, arriving at the track with my helmet in hand and, and meeting every, every team yeah, owner and so making that was a good lesson for me. And, and that turned into more races. Um, um, we finished on the podium, you know, that turned, that, that turned into more endurance races um, and a similar story at the end of the year, I met an, an American fellow called Peter Barron who had met me at Road Atlanta when I was racing LP 2 He put me into his Grand Am car the next season And I I all of a sudden found this new love for motorsport and endurance racing. Um, I never, never expected to love it so much, but that that was true. Like I I absolutely loved the racing. I loved the team side of it, the endurance side of it, getting through the traffic. Um, Loved everything about it. Did my first Le Mans 24 hour in in 2012, and in some ways, yeah, felt this. Yeah, like I said, this new love for motorsport.
2: Um, I was just curious whether um, your your particular style of driving. Do you think that suited endurance racing perhaps more than it did single seaters?
1: I don't know, um, to be to be honest.
0: Um, did did you have I, to? I, did I you see yourself I, having to adapt quite a bit when you got into that endurance car, or was it very much you know it's a of, racing driver? You can race of, anything.
1: I think in terms of driving the car, no, because I, I like to look at a race car. It, quite simply, you know, it, it's, it's a car, it's got four wheels, the physics behind making the car, look, like getting the car as quick around a track as possible is kind of similar with, with most cars, mm. you know, obviously wings and slicks, it's very different, but getting the most out of a race car wasn't different. But yes, the style of racing and, and being patient in the traffic and reading, you know, all those situations is completely different. And that, I wouldn't say I gelled with that straight away. It took, it took me some time, you know, there's a lot to learn in endurance racing. Um, I, I, I don't know if my style suited it better, but what I would say is I, I really enjoyed my time immediately in endurance racing. And, and I liked all the, all the challenges that, that went along with it. Um, and presume- yeah, you asked, I don't know if you are, or you, I think you did ask my, my journey to, to Porsche, but what basically what happened there was um, I sent an email, uh, I think during 2013 to Porsche. I, again, I picked up the phone I got a contact from someone. Um, I asked them to, look at all my stints during my time in LMP2 and, and, I, and I basically said I'm the man for the job and um, I never even re- expected a reply but I, was, I almost didn't send the email and um, a little, about a month later I got a reply from, from Andreas Seidel who, who asked me to come and meet him in, in, in Stuttgart to discuss um, being part of their, their Porsche their, their new Porsche LMP1 program and that opportunity was, was, was huge um, I had to test to, to prove my worth but I guess the timing was was unreal. They were looking for someone young, um, who had a little bit of endurance racing experience, um, and and I, I think I ticked a, a lot of the boxes. and And that they took me on, and that was that was a huge opportunity there. And and that was, I'm going to say that was my my first real professional job. You know, in the junior team, I was never really professional. I wasn't getting paid. Yeah. Yes, I was a reserve driver. I was standing at the racetracks, but that was my first real professional job where I put on my Porsche overalls, you felt that pressure of being yeah. you know representing that brand, you had a paycheck coming in um massive professional team that you know you you were part of trying to get the most out of the technology and development I mean, yeah, all those things that come along with being a professional that that was the first time I could yeah truly call myself
2: a professional yeah and that, I suppose that that, that first w e c championship that must have been clearly your your first real um sense of um not only belonging but also um complete euphoria um tell us a bit about the emotions that you were going through when when you uh took your first WEC championship yeah
1: I mean even just I remember, I'll never forget my first Lamar Le, Le not my Lamar Le, Le win but just standing on the grid at Lamar in the Porsche overalls looking down the um up and down the the, the grandstand seeing Porsche flags waving and that that's um, that feeling standing on the grid at Le Mans has never been matched. Even my first Formula One race, I did, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of Formula One fans will be shocked by that. But the feeling standing on the grid at Le Mans, um, representing a brand like Porsche or, or now now Toyota, I haven't haven't raced for for Toyota yet at yeah. Le Mans, but we don't know when that's going to happen. Now it's been delayed. Yeah. But yeah, that 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 feeling and that energy on the grid is is un, unrivaled anywhere. In, in, in the racing world in my opinion was, well it's it's yeah, one of the,
2: the certainly the top three isn't it I mean I suppose you, you've got the Monaco the Monaco Grand Prix the Indy 500 and the Le Mans 24 hour it's it, it doesn't get any bigger than that and and winning that race must have been just an absolutely astonishing feeling and then to go on and win the world championship twice um you must have been on cloud nine
1: yeah and I you know not, not only that you know we had so much fun and um I'll always look back and cherish those, those years at, at Porsche and the, the first, the first couple with, with Mark Weber and Timo and I learned so much from them and we had so much fun and we, we, we were really this, we had, with such a good team spirit, you know, we, we were really a team, you know, it wasn't just three drivers driving a car. We were really had that team bond that I don't think many racing drivers will ever experience, particularly not in, um, you know, if, they, if they're only in single seaters and, um, were in in all the details and you know it was just it was just a it was just an awesome time and awesome racing and it was competitive and and yeah it was it was that that's what made me as a driver to be honest that, that mm. learning from being in a car with two professionals and in, a, in a, a high pressure environment um, yeah I, sorry I'm kind of lost for words but it, w- it was no. it was an awesome time and and that that's kind of what took me to the next level as a driver yeah um, after being in such a professional environment with such great teammates and looking, looking back at it now, realizing that, yeah, the, it's, you know, it's, 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 kind of over, but it it was, yeah, I'll always look back and, and with, with fond memories at that time.
0: Yep. You'll let us let's, let's just touch on, on that ending, obviously, you know, two WC championships and, and a Le Mans win and, and Porsche leaving in, in 2018, uh, so 17, sorry. Um, how how was the, the build up to that end and, and what were you doing, you know, within yourself to to sort of look for the next steps? How how do you even begin after after having such highs and then having to go, right, I've got to I've got to almost start, you know, not start again, but you've got to turn a new leaf in your career?
1: Yeah, it was I think we we're all a bit shell-shocked when we've when we when we 1st had the news that, that Porsche would be pulling out of the lmp one program. Um, you know, we were all so invested in, and as I just said, you know, we were all so happy to be there and, and we were enjoying the racing the competitive side of it. Um, I'm just trying to remember exactly how it went, but you know, I didn't, I didn't panic and, and it, I guess it was very similar to earlier in my career. I, I picked up the phone, you know, and, yeah. and, um, you know, Porsche were not throwing us out the door, you know, they were giving us opportunities to continue as Porsche factory drivers. It wasn't clear what that was going to mean. You know, there was, there was obviously GT They just announced formula E, but that, that's two years down the road. Um, and I remember sitting at home and, and uh, I think it was before the, the Hungarian Grand Prix 2017. And I remember that there was a, a young driver test after the Hungarian Grand Prix. And it hadn't been announced who Red Toro Rosso was was going to be using. And um, just had this thought, pick up the phone, you know, like I've had all this experience developing cars at, at Mercedes um, and, and Formula One program. i have just been involved in Porsche. It's such a, it's a very, it was a very high level, you know, it's very similar environment to Formula One in terms of team structure. So I called Helmut Marco up. Um, I hadn't spoken to him in in years actually. And um, basically told him that if there was ever an opportunity, uh, I was, I was more referring to testing. (laughs) That's why when I called him up, I said, if there's, if there's an opportunity, you know, I'm, I'm a different driver than what I was uh, all those years ago. And, and uh, I'm ready. And, and, uh, it was funny when he didn't say much at the time. He, I, I could kind of hear his, hear the cogs turning, so to speak, and, and um, he just said, okay. And and that was pretty much the extent of the conversation. <laughs> A few weeks later, he, he he called me up and asked if I could come to drive the simulator in Milton Keynes. And without asking too many questions, I went and tested the simulator. They put me through quite an extensive program. I'm guessing they were testing me against others that had been in there Um I don't know who, that, who they were, but I'm sure, I'm sure that was the case. And then another week later, um, they were, were talking about putting me in for the my first Grand Prix. So I mean, it, it really all happened within a number of wow. weeks, and I didn't see it coming. I don't think any, I don't think anyone in the motorsport world saw it coming. Um, and that, that's that's really the truth of the story. That that's how it happened. Um, well, there's a bit more to the story too because I, I was I was looking at IndyCar at the time as well um i did i did kind of leave that but i i think during that time I, I was also yeah meeting with an indycar team I, I was i was very close to to being in in the us i'd committed myself mentally to driving the Nobles and and moving to indianapolis and um and then at the very last moment this this opportunity to race formula 1 came up and and uh, i obviously took it and in in, in, yeah. the, in those, I think one uh, day I write a book. There's there's a lot more to the story, and it, it was it was. It, I, it, think, yeah, it's, I think yeah, it, it sounds like it needs, it needs a
2: book. It needs a book. It's it's astonishing already. Just listening to your talk, um, mm. you get fully invested in this story, don't you? It's it's that's absolutely fascinating. And th- this relationship with Dr. Marco. Yeah, lead up the lead up to that that first Grand Prix. I mean, I, I don't want to go into it all now, but that was the craziest month of my
1: life. Like there, there's there's probably some things I still can't talk about now, but how it all unfolded and happened and the stress that I was under to try and make that deal work. And it wasn't financially, it was because I had other deals on the table. Yeah. I mean, one day I'll, I know my, my wife actually was writing down, like I was, I was on the, cause I was traveling and still racing for Porsche at the time. I was sometimes on the phone till three o'clock in the morning, looking at t- contracts. I was on the phone to helmet market at all hours in the morning and Sarah was actually making notes just because she knew how crazy. Yeah my wow. whole story was so I do have some notes there to tell the, the full story one day but yeah it was it was a crazy
2: your, your relationship with Dr Marco um at this point what is the relationship like there do you end up talking a lot Do you talk every day is it intermittent H- how does that relationship look um well during that week it was it was every day because we were, we were trying to get this uh it
1: all sorted to race in my my first Grand Prix and you know this was this was no more than a week and a half, two weeks before um, the Austin Grand Prix. So we, we were talking every day to try and figure out all those details, and um, there was some other contract stuff that I just mentioned before that that was incredibly complicated. Um, but yeah, no, I, I always had a, I think I always had a, a mutual respect with you know with with Helmet, and you know he, he was tough. Um, I'm, I, you know, in my early career, I'll, I'll never forget. The feeling I used to get when I when I'd see the call pop up from Helmut Marco, my, my heart rate would rise yeah. fifty beats because it was you know back then it was never normally a, a good phone call, and I'll never forget when I when I won my first race, maybe not my first race, but it was maybe the second or third race. So I had I had Helmet Marco call pop up, and I thought, oh great, he's going to say congratulations. And the phone call was actually, why didn't you win by more? So that was
2: <laughs> kind of you know he, he was
1: very hard on us um, as young juniors. Um, but I think when I established myself as a as a professional, you know, he had a very, it was a different relationship, and and I always was able to have a good joke with him, and I always respected that he was so straight and and transparent. Yeah, you know, he what he, what he he meant what he said, which which I liked, and and that can't be said for everyone on the F1 paddock. You know, there's there's a lot of others that that go through the paddock on their belly, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and at least with helmet you knew where you stood. And I liked that. What what um, you saw was what you
2: got with him. Yeah, for for sure. I mean, and like you say, I I think motorsport's one of those sports where it's very difficult to find people you trust and, and when you do meet them along the way you've got to hang on to them um let, let's fast forward then you've you've done the race yeah. in in um in the at the usgp in austin and a, a brilliant um a brilliant event a brilliant place to be um 2018 you get your your first full season in formula one and and i think it's fair to say you had your run of bad luck um i, I think i read <laughs> on the f1 website that you hit a bird um you 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 got taken out you had engine issues suspension failures um you outpaced your teammate in the first of two or three qualifying sessions but still got flat from the media how did you deal with it in those first few races when questions are already being thrown at you about your future where where was your mindset um going into the 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 middle part of that season
1: yeah there there was (laughs) there were some tough moments
2: um as you say there were some times that i was unlucky
1: and um and, yeah, the the, the, the media are, are looking for a story, right? They're, they're looking uh, – I mean, yeah, I am talking I guess you guys are media too, but that, that that was something that was hard to deal with. I wasn't used to being so much under the microscope, so much in the spotlight. Obviously, you know, professional career at Porsche was different, so to speak. You know, it was more about the brand, more about the car, but the, you know, the team. Um, but, yeah – I mean, I, I have a lot of cherished memories from my time and from the one. It was it was always my dream, um, but there, yeah, there were some tough moments. I'm, I'm not going to lie, and and there were some defining points there. And and like you say, you know, you, there was. I, I mean, uh, Bahrain was an obvious one where my teammate Pierre, I think he finished fourth, and and we we had an incredible car that weekend. And uh, that was the funny thing about the midfield battles, is, you know, anyone who followed it, sometimes we didn't know why, but every now and then we'd have this incredible car. Maybe it's just how the tires worked and, you know, got into the window and Pierre delivered on that weekend. Um, I had a, I think I, I was one tenth or so behind him qualifying, but um, had a crash on the first lap, a drive through, it didn't work out, you know, and, and those little moments can be defining, you know, he's, he's always done had a top four I'm, you know, feeling terrible after the race for not, not scoring any points. So that, you know, when, when you've got one season or just a few races to prove yourself, some of those defining moments can can uh, can really make a big difference. Absolutely, um, yeah. But, yeah, it's fair to say after that, I did have my fair share of, 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 of bad luck. And, look, I, I don't, I don't want to blame all luck or, you know, individual people, whatever it is, but I did have a bit of a bad run. But what I would say is that I was quite, you know, looking back, I was proud on how I brought myself back at the end of the season. We didn't always have a car to score on the points, Um but I actually got stronger at the end of the season, even un- under being under so much pressure yeah. after four races, I was being asked about rumors about being kicked out of the team. And when, when, you know, I just come out of races, you know, out quite from my teammate, whatever it was. And I didn't feel like I was always just, but I had to deal with it. And um, I felt like by the end of the season, I did learn how to deal with that. And I actually got stronger and stronger. So I was, I learned a lot from that experience. Um, I definitely could have done better at times. I was learning on the way, um, but ultimately I didn't, didn't make it any further. And and what I would say is I, I I don't look back and say, oh, I should have been there another season. I you know, should have this, should have that. In the end, I had this very unexpected opportunity to be in Formula One. Mm. I have no regrets. I gave it my best shot. Um, there were a few key defining moments. Maybe if I hadn't have made a mistake there, if I was a little bit lucky there, you know, we would have had a better result and the momentum would have been with you. But, there's always ifs and buts and um, I gave it my best shot and there are plenty, hundreds of other drivers out there that I know would be worthy of an F1 shot that didn't get one. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I don't look back at it in, in, uh, in anger or any regrets. I'm not looking for sympathy, but it's, it's, not, just, it's not just the media as well. You know, There's, there's obviously big politics within the team as sure. well, um, which probably not interested to go into to be honest, but um well uh, I did read uh, that not everyone not everyone sees what goes on behind the scenes as well.
0: You 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 did allude to that in your in your article your sort of farewell to Formula One and sort of stating that perhaps even from as far back as Monaco you know despite whatever the rest of the season entailed you were probably going to be out at the end of the season how how what was that about can can you don't have to expand on that if you don't want to but is there anything to expand on that um, I I don't really feel like going into it <laughs> there is politics involved in Formula One of course yeah.
1: It's, it's a, normal. There's it's a lot of money a, involved. A there's game, a lot yeah. of people, you know, there's even in Toro there must've been 500 odd people involved and, and uh,
2: mm.
1: egos and people trying to move up and, and, and of all course. the rest of that. And, um, it's a complex sport, you know, it, yeah. it's a very complex sport and, it's part of the reason why, you know, we love it as well. It, it, it is it is complicated, and, and um, but the politics side of it, I didn't always enjoy it.
0: So. No, and of course, and that, that's always going to be the case. But when when you look at something like the Red Bull system, you know, at the end of the day, they've given you a massive shot in Formula One. So Red, yeah. what, what do you make of the Red Bull system? Because we, we alluded to it earlier. You know, there's there's pay drivers, uh, you know, who've got mummy and daddy's money, but then, you know, there's systems like Red Bull. You've got Mercedes now. You've got Sauber, Ferrari you have got one as well these are essentially the same thing. So how do you look at the Red Bull driver program now, you know, with, you know, with your years of experience with it and outside of it?
1: Well, I mean, I should only speak from my own personal experience, but without that system, I, I, I never, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Yeah, I, yeah. I never would have had the opportunity to, to go and race in, in Europe. Um, so I think the, these programs are fantastic for, for bringing talented drivers through um, without daddy's money, as you said, but I, I want to be careful saying that because I don't think it's always fair. You know, you can you can have a lot of talent even if you're, you're coming from a from a wealthy family. Yeah, so. completely. But, I don't mean, think it's always fair to 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 call out people like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, all, all I can say is I had my opportunities um, for the most part due to Red Bull. So I, I can only thank them for that. And I'm sure there's plenty of other drivers out there that are that will tell you the same. So um, I think we're we're very lucky in motorsport to have have such programs to to breed talent and, and bring them
2: through. Now, Brendan, before we uh, we touch on your Formula E exploits, we have a very important quiz for you to test your knowledge. Now, there is a leaderboard here; there are people on it. We were expecting big things, and I think Harry's been pretty kind with these questions. So I'm expecting you to uh, be so, well what, up the leaderboard. What topic, mate.
1: I'm getting nervous now. Don't be uh, nervous. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of motorsport in my free time, mate. I steer clear of it. So it, um, well, you're
0: lucky because these are all to do with you. So hopefully, this is our uh, motor mouth quiz, notoriously the hardest motorsport quiz um, in the world. Uh, yeah, there's a maximum of four points up for grabs. I've got four <laughs> clips for you. That's the question. Four questions. four questions. And basically, we're going to play you four clips. Um, right. After each one, basically, I just want you to listen and then tell me what you think is happening or what happens next. So we'll start with clip number one.
2: Mate, is he going to
1: let him? What the f- going on? Mate, he's be on so much.
0: <laughs> Beat me out as well, mate. <laughs> no, I, I know exactly what that was, yeah. But... Yeah, go on then. What's happening there?
1: Um, that was... Um... In, in Brazil when uh, I, I was told my, my teammate was going to let me by so I wasn't attacking him and uh, for like four or five laps he didn't let me by and I was just getting a bit annoyed. Cause...
0: One point, point for uh, you yeah. let's, uh, let's move to clip number two uh, Now for this one I want you to think about where this is happening. Okay, here we go
1: Are you okay? Yep, Suspension failure and that was Silverstone, mate. I remember that one well, too. Happened yeah.
0: quick. That, that is uh, the, that, the only – I saw watching the, the replay of the crash. It's very akin to – I don't know if you remember the one uh, of, of course, your, your mate, Sebastian Buemi in the Toyota also back yeah. in China where both his wheels uh, came, yeah. came off. I shouldn't
1: say this, but if every now and then I bring that video out. Like, we have a little <laughs> yeah. chat with the, with, with the Toyota drivers and um, – because I, I just find that hilarious. I know, I know it was terrible what happened and it could have been worse, but you, yeah. you can see him trying to steer the thing like a boat. You know, like he's got no front wheels. Always makes me laugh. But he, he still doesn't really laugh about it, which is great. So if you want to give oh, a We'll definitely bring that over, up. Uh, we'll bring that
0: one up, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. All right, well, that's two out of four so far. You're doing well. Let's move on to clip number three. Yeah.
2: Here it comes. And he's got tangled up with Lance Strong. Yeah, what so happened that,
1: there? Well... Yeah, about th- was it like three or four weekends in a row, I had massive shunts, and that was just one of them. So, um, yeah, I was on the uh, on the outside of Lance in Canada. I don't remember. The yeah, I don't know the name of the corner, but I still I, I still don't know if he actually had a puncture because um, I heard there were kind of some people said he had a puncture, some people didn't. That was a big crash too, mate. I had a headache and um, oh no, really?
0: Yeah, big, big headache after that one.
1: But then, well, it doesn't it look as bad as, as the silver Sun one, but that one hurt more.
0: Yeah, well, you well, if it's any consolation, you get a point.
1: Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> this yeah, is looking good. I must, get, I must get
1: another point for the most big crashes in a, in a Formula 1 season. That's a, a fair comment. <laughs> the, the,
2: this, this, one, this one is not crash-related. Here it comes.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely, we're punching above our weight. Four and a half million people. Other side of the world, don't forget. Um, yeah, I don't know, I get asked a lot. I mean, actually, 2012,
0: when I first competed in the morning, so, what are you talking about there? Any ideas? What am I talking about?
1: Yeah. My wife's in the other room listening, so I said punching above my weight. I, I, I might have been talking about. <laughs> oh. Go oh, on, my wife. Mrs. Hartley. Yeah. Um, no, I guess I was just chatting about all the Kiwis in, in New Zealand Motorsport. I think that's what I was talking
0: about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, so you've got four out of four there. Well done. That takes you to the top of the leaderboard. But actually, at the moment, that means you're tied with uh, three others. That's uh, uh, Ollie Webb. Uh, it was nice
1: they weren't very hard, but yeah. Uh, there's well, there's uh, the opportunity to go top.
0: Question now. Um, can you tell me for a bonus point, what year Red Bull first joined Formula One, and who were their drivers?
1: So, because they were first with, with, together with
0: Salva, so you're, you're meaning as a... Okay, so th- as a, as a fully-fledged team.
1: Okay, so I don't, I'm just trying to think of the year. So it was Mark Webber and... No. It's Are tense. Ideas?
0: It's tense. Oh.
1: But Red Bull took over Jaguar, right?
0: Yes. Tim, get your stats up.
1: But hold on. So I'm just, I'm just thinking about this. Yeah. First year... God. Yeah, I'm not going to get the bonus point then. Oh no. Because um, if I, I give you one,
0: one of the drivers, was, it's
1: really bad. I was
0: about to say David Coulthard and Mike Webber, so that's that's really well, bad. Well, that one of them right. is that well, you've got you're halfway there.
1: Yeah. Who
0: was if the one, one of those drivers is correct, so you have got DC. Okay. So DC. It's it's uh, it's a really it, I mean with all respect to the driver, it's a left field driver. It, it's not the first one that comes to your mind.
2: No. It's a, I think that's half a point
0: Half a point We need half an out point. Point.
2: We need an out Who was the other driver? Who was the other
0: Christian driver? Christian Clean Christian Clean Yeah You know what They no, you said it it's, yeah. yeah Any more idea on the year? Oh the year
1: I
2: don't know 2004? Oh Suckers so You're
0: one out You are one out 2005 Okay But I'm going to give you Half a bonus point For getting David Coulthard So uh, That takes you Brendan Hartley To the top of the most amounts leaderboard With four And a half points I'm going to give you Some more applause Great. A smaller
2: pause. This beats your double World Championship winning WEC business. I'm sure it does. Um, on TV, yeah. Let's, uh, um, let's bring it let's back to Formula E. Um, this is a topic of discussion that we often have on this podcast about Formula E, the merits of it, how good it is, how good it isn't, what people like about it, what they don't. And it, it is polarising. How are you enjoying it?
1: Yeah, I'd say I'd be enjoying it a lot more if I had had more success, which <laughs> it hasn't really gone very well so far. Um, yeah, you know, as, as you can imagine, when you're doing well, it's, uh, yeah. you're loving life. Um, when you're spraying champagne, it's, it's easy to, to enjoy it. But no, I, I do enjoy it. You know, it's incredibly competitive, um, not only from the drivers, but also the teams. I mean, I, don't, I can't think of any other series out there that has so many manufacturers you know, fully you know OEM manufacturers involved and and um, supporting the championship, and I think some of the the, the racing style with managing energy, there's, there's it's very complex, but also it creates great racing. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough. You know, like it's it's been it's been a tough entry for me, and and uh, you know, Dragon um, Geox Dragon, I uh, really like the team. Um, but we are a small team and I think, you know, we no one's hiding the fact that I think we're definitely the smallest team that, that is, we're creating our own drivetrain, and, and we we have a lot less staff than, than the likes of these, these big manufacturers, but we, we still believe that we can, you know, hopefully challenge a bit when we do get racing again. Um, but so far it hasn't gone to plan, you know? Um, but we, I think what we do have on, on our side uh, and being in a small team without the same restrictions of being manufactured you can be a bit more dynamic but hopefully now that we we actually have a couple of months up our sleeve to to work you know we we have all these great ideas but not enough man hours and time to to implement them so hopefully with a couple of months up our sleeve we might be able to fight back but i enjoy it it's you know a lot of people worry about um electric cars not being exciting um to to drive And, and my argument there is once you get used to the fact that there's no engine noise, uh, an electric motor is incredibly exciting to drive. It's yeah. very, it's very direct. Uh, sitting sit, sitting in the car, you feel more at one with the drivetrain than you do in a in a, in a combustion engine car. And, yeah. and the way I'd explain that is that you have a more of a direct link from the throttle to the accelerator. You know, there's no lag. You have instant torque, instant power. So you have this this very direct link from from what you're doing on the throttle pedal to to the to the um, electric engine Um, another thing i'd say is you take away that sound but you you all of a sudden get all these other cues that you you, you've never had before you can hear the tires screeching you can hear the car bottoming out you you hear this wind noise so you become more in tune with with other cues um that you haven't experienced before so it's um it's definitely oh and another thing to mention we have a lot more power than we have grip so there's there's, no, yeah. <laughs> no, there's no there. We're, we are fighting those cars but no it's, yeah. it, i think it's exciting and i think what it does do is is it it displays and, and advertises um electric racing yeah. electric vehicles um in an exciting manner you know i think it wasn't that long ago when everyone saw electric vehicles as very boring and and i and i think that that's changed in a very short amount of time and and as has the technology and development of, of of the cars in a very short short amount of time, I'm yeah. sure that's going to be no different in the next years. So yeah,
2: no, it's great. I mean, we, we my opinion of it has has changed. I mean, I, I I've said for a long time when it first came out, wasn't the biggest fan, but I'm I'm certainly warming to it. And we we spoke to Ollie um, Webb not long ago, who's who's had the opportunity to drive um, in a couple of Formula E. Uh, cars yeah. and he's he absolutely loved it he he was waxing lyrical about it couldn't couldn't get enough of yeah. it so um, I think for, as a driving experience it sounds utterly amazing um, and and you know they've they've done incredibly well to get it to where it is and and you know whether it, it it's it's the future or it's a passing phase or you know whatever it ends up being I think it, it provides exciting wheel-to-wheel racing and that's what everybody wants to see.
1: Yeah, and what, what I didn't even mention was the fact that we're, we're driving in the heart of city centres yeah. that, that never seen motorsport before on arguably some of the most difficult tracks we've ever seen before. So th- there's that element too, you know. We, we, the, the series has been able to take electric racing to, to places that it's never been, sorry, racing in general to places it's never been before. So that, that part of it, it also is exciting. Um, like I said, I, if, if I was sitting here after spraying a bit of champagne and, and having a bit more success, yeah. Um, it would be a different story. It has been tough. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I'm remaining positive that, that as a team and, and we, we can, you know, maybe still turn it around.
0: Touch well, words. fingers crossed when, and if we get back racing, uh, this year, it will be, yeah. uh, an upward, uh, incline. Um, do you have a, a hero, uh, racing or otherwise?
1: Um, I'd
0: say no as a short answer,
1: but as a young fella, um, for reasons I don't, I sort I still don't fully know why, but I was a massive, uh, John Lacy fan as a kid. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, so I think he was sporting the same number as, as um, me at the time, which was twenty eight. It was the young go so I was a Ferrari fan, and I think I was always, you know, I, I supported the underdog. You know, there was, you know, Schumacher always winning the races, and yeah. I was supporting John Lacey. so um, I, I was a huge John Lacey fan, and I've actually, you know, met him a few times in the paddock, and it was quite funny as meeting him when. You know, it's very different. It's, it's funny meeting someone when he was kind of a childhood hero, so to speak. But, uh, you know, in terms of racing, I, you know, I wouldn't say I have a hero. I've got a, obviously a lot of people I look up to and admire and fellow competitors that I, that I have respect for. But um, it, as a young fella, I supported John Lacey and had the Ferrari flag on my wall.
2: I think that's a good shout. I'm, I'm with you on John mm. Lacey. Um, okay, what do you rubbish at? Oh, um, dancing. Hmm. Ooh, not gonna see not you on, on strictly enough. come football. dancing football. Okay. Ah, another another. Well, I'm not bad football.
1: I'm not bad with um like, you know, with the hands, like throwing a ball, juggling, all that kind of stuff. But with the feet I never really played uh never really played football. Well,
0: fair enough. But well, do you have any talents that perhaps the uh, the public aren't aware of? I think it's any be guitar? unusual quirks. Unusual quirks. I fancy myself on the mountain bike. I I mean that's
1: I love riding my mountain bike. I'm not going to yeah. say I'm well fast, but I, I guess I can ride a few people on, on two wheels. Um, I actually, since we've been in lockdown, I just bought a guitar, ordered it in. So I've just started playing the guitar again. I'm not particularly good, but I do enjoy playing it. Well, I'd I say to one, learn. one hidden talent that was quite funny, um, almost I didn't know I had it either, was uh, on the we, we had a Toyota um, race, uh, training camp with all the drivers and upper management Uh, about a month, sorry, two months ago in Austria. So it was a winter training camp. So I've never really skied in my life before. I've never, you know, haven't done a lot of the winter stuff because I'm basically chasing the sun. I come home for summer and over Christmas and I go back to Europe for summer during the racing season. Um, But on one of the days we went to play ice hockey. Um, So I kind of, I told everyone, look, I've never really been ice skating before. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. I hopped on the ice and, um, yeah, it was a bit of a hidden talent. So, even <laughs> to a you, <laughs> I used to play roller hockey as a, as a young fella. Uh, um, what's that? I used so to play it's this. Ice hockey, but on on rollerblades. Oh, okay. I, so I, incredible. I, I played. I played for about four or five years. I I, rep, I didn't. I didn't tell anyone at Twitter, so don't mention. I actually represented my 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 uh, my local town, and the, so <laughs> I, I was decent. But I never. I kind of didn't realize twenty years later, hopping on ice, that it was all going to come back and. I think I really pissed all the other drivers off because everyone's kind of struggling just to stand up or even hit the puck. And here I was doing slap shots and flicking in the top corner. And so that was a bit of a hidden talent that I, I actually got a bit of a bug for it. I'd love to hop back on the ice, but it's not an easy thing to.
2: There's, there's um, a, there's a video coming here. I can see it, Harry already. So when I, when I was about, how old would I have been? I don't know, 20 something. And weirdly, tenuous links here. My brother, who's a Kiwi, he was over in the UK um one of the few times that he came over here and he came to watch me play roller hockey because I used to play a lot. Oh, you used to play as well? Yeah, I I played for a team called the Beverly Bandits. And uh I was the one of the youngest guys to ever represent them. I got picked for Great Britain and then quit. I just stopped playing. But he came over to watch me play and I loved it. And the same as you, I could jump on the ice tomorrow and be absolutely fine and totally confident. I can just this is wow. it. Harry this is it. We're doing a video. Brendan Hartley we're going roller. Yeah, we're going rollerblading. Well, so it's all going to happen. I've, I've potentially oversold my abilities,
1: but <laughs> I do like that all the time though, I was nervous about going onto ice skates, but then quickly I realized it wasn't so different from the rollerblades. Um but I I absolutely loved it. Like I I, I was thinking I was trying to figure out where I could actually go and um you know hop on the ice and you know, head a puck around somewhere, but it's, it's not easy to actually find that unless you live in Canada or.
2: No, true. Otherwise. True. But rollerblading is great for your fitness. Get out. Oh, you can't. Oh, you, yeah, you could do that. Even in lockdown, you
0: could go, go out rollerblading around the countryside.
2: Right, Harry, I think it's probably time for our final four.
0: Yes, actually, before we do the final four questions, I had one, I have one question that I just wanted to, I, I didn't get the chance to go in earlier, but it was when you touched on your uh, simulator driving with Mercedes. When you were going in every day, were there signs of what was to come at Mercedes and and the World Championship years? Hundred percent, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I mean that the team was incredibly motivated. Uh, even myself as a sim driver was doing long hours, and and um, you could just see you, you could see how motivated and, and how much they were they were pushing. And I had I had a really good feeling there. I, I enjoyed my time at, at Mercedes, and I'm sure a lot of the guys I'm, I was working with are still there today. So yeah. Yeah, I, I always had the feeling that they were they were coming. Yeah. Since I left they've been very dominant. Yeah. I don't know if there's a
0: <laughs> <bike>. <laughs> You laid the foundations. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um okay, so we have a, a final four questions that we ask everybody uh who comes on. Um so I'll kick things off. Uh what's got you excited at the moment?
1: Playing my guitar again. Because I I'm not very good, but I, I want to learn a few, a few new songs. Yeah. And, yeah. If you weren't a racing driver, what would you be doing? I really have no clue. Um I guess if you consider that it's what I've done all my life and I'm mm. even next 16, I have no idea. I mean, at this point, it's probably going to be something to do with racing because that's all I know.
2: Um, Let's go hairdresser. I
0: yeah, hairdressing. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I wouldn't get to work. Um, how much of uh, your success is about luck? How much is about hard work? I'm going to say 75% a bit of
1: luck and, and right time. But at, at that same time, You've, you've got to make the most of those opportunities when they do come up. So I guess that's the yeah. 20%. So yeah, I'm, I'm very aware of uh, being in the right place at the right time. But also it does require, you. yeah, like you say, requires you kind of getting that luck. I wouldn't say picking up the phone's hard work, but it's, it's, it is also about making those opportunities and, and yeah. kind of trying to find them as well.
2: Final question for you, Brendan, and then we'll let you have your breakfast. Um, what are you
0: scared of? Spiders. Yeah. Oh, there's that's another one. A lot of people. It's spiders. I don't mind them. Well, depending on the spiders, Matt. Like, I'm not. I'm not that scared. But you don't want to be near it. I'm like, yeah, you get the spider. And so
1: I'll, you I'll get I'll, some, get some big
0: spiders out there.
1: No, not really. That's Never, you, right. sure. you know what you do oh, get oh, out yeah. there. You, that's probably why I'm scared when I go to Australia and you see these big huntsmen it's funny, like pe- people that haven't been to New Zealand think it's, you know, there's going to be snakes and crocodiles and I think mm. we've got nothing
0: that'll hurt you. you know. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the
2: end. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, fascinating Sorry. to hear your story. You 100% must write a book. Um, and ah. um, honestly, it's, it's been a real pleasure um, getting you on here. Thank you for taking the, the time out of your day. Um, stay safe out there. Um, we hope this all blows over quickly and we see you back on a racetrack yeah. soon. But, um, <laughs> (laughs) huge thanks from both Harry and I and all our listeners and um, we will see you in a paddock soon cheers
1: guys have a good one
0: thank you so much for listening and giving up your time for us we'll be back with another episode soon if you've missed any of the previous episodes you can take a hop back in your chosen podcast player and find them all there and don't forget there's also loads more content on MMTV and the Motormouth app available to download on any device now Uh, and to continue uh, to allow us to help create lots of cool content and to keep making these podcasts we wanted to let you know about about our new patron program and how you can join. It just starts from £5 a month to 10 or 20 Each tier allows you slightly different levels of access depending on which one you choose. You can enjoy early access to podcast episodes, exclusive member benefits, merchandise, shout-outs, and your chance to feature on one of our shows. Any support you can give us is massively appreciated and will help us grow and continue to bring cool content to race fans all over the world. Just search for us on patreon.com or you can find out all the details Across our socials on twitter it's at motormouth underscore instagram at motormouth underscore official and on facebook just search motormouth like subscribe and review if you feel so inclined as well it really helps people to find the podcast but in the meantime from myself and tim we'll catch you next time